Om Namo Narayanaya. We are starting today Chapter 31, Lord Kaplamuni's instructions on the movements of the living entities. The last few chapters have been really heavy with theology. And sometimes you just hit something in the Srimad Bhagavatam and you're like, oh, slow down, it's too much. The last chapter was like that, talking about material living and hell. And I recommend at the end of it to go back and reread it. This one, I'm... <laughs> I'm guessing we're gonna we're gonna get there anyways. Also, I don't know what this is about, but I, I've gotten this feeling as we've been going through these three books that we've gone from the big picture. You know, in the beginning I was reading about the Brahman coming up from the stem of the lotus flower and the world was creating and, and we've slowly, slowly, slowly zoomed in, zoomed in, zoomed in. So now we're looking at the micro living on on you know and happiness we're like i said the last chapter was talking about happiness we've gone from this big picture very slowly it almost crept up on me to the point where i didn't even realize it till actually i didn't realize it till afterwards we're now looking at very detailed things so this is very detailed stuff you may have to go back and work with this on your own or read it on your own totally understandable and uh, if you do that Please come back and comment what your insights or your thoughts, whatever. Anyways, here we go. Let's dive in. We're only actually going to be reading the first part of this, just as a heads up. Lord Vishnu said, Under the supervision of the Supreme Lord and according to the result of his work, the living entity, the soul, is made to enter into the womb of a woman through the particle of male semen to assume a particular type of body. On the first night, the sperm and ovum mix, and on the fifth night, the mixture ferments into a bubble. On the tenth night, it develops into a form like a plum, and after that, it gradually turns into a lump of flesh or an egg, as the case may be. In the course of a month, a head is formed, and at the end of two months, the hands, feet, and other limbs take shape. By the end of three months, the nails, fingers, toes, body, hair, bones, and skin appear, as do the organ of generation, and other apertures in the body, namely the eyes, nostrils, ears, mouth, and anus. Within four months from the date of conception, the seven essential ingredients of the body, namely child, blood, flesh, fat, bone, marrow, and semen, come into existence. At the end of five months, hunger and thirst make themselves felt, and at the end of six months, the fetus, enclosed by the amnion, begins to move on the right side of the abdomen. Deriving its nutrition from the food and drink taken by the mother, the fetus grows and remains in that abominable residence of stool and urine, which is the breeding place of all kinds of worms. Bitten again all and again all over the body by the hungry worms in the abdomen itself, the child suffers terrible agony because of his tenderness. He thus becomes unconscious moment after moment because of the terrible condition. Owing to the mother's eating bitter, pungent foodstuffs, or food which is too salty or too sour, the body of the child incessantly suffers pains which are almost intolerable. Placed within the, within the amnion and covered outside by the intestines, the child remains lying on one side of the abdomen, his head turned towards his belly and his back and neck arched like a bow. The child thus remains just like a bird in a cage without freedom of movement. At that time, if the child is fortunate, he can remember all the troubles of his past one hundred births, and he grieves wretchedly. What is the possibility of peace of mind in that condition? 
Thus endowed with the development of consciousness from the seventh month after his conception, the child is tossed downward by the airs that press the embryo during the weeks preceding delivery. Like the worms born of the same filthy abdominal cavity, he cannot remain in one place. The living entity in this frightful condition of life, bound by seven layers of material ingredients, prays with folded hands, appealing to the Lord who has put him in that condition. And here I'm going to stop. I am not a scientist. I have not had any children of my own, and I never will. So I do not have first-hand experience with birthing a child. I have not studied the science of this. You know where I'm going with this. <laughs> I don't know if what I just read is accurate science or not. Uh, I, I don't know how close it is, if it's a guess or if it's far off. I have no idea. I don't know if what I just read was originally written in the Srimad Bhagavatam and has been changed over time. I don't know if what I just read is less the Srimad Bhagavatam and more the interpretation of the translator, Swami Prabhupada, who had modern science at his disposal. And he had, what, five kids? That being said, it has been said over and over and over again that Hinduism is scientific maybe the most scientific religion out there. It talks about science, hardcore science, that you never find in, well, no other religion than I know of. And you can read other texts. There is an Upanishad that talks about the different parts of the body in vivid detail with there's X number of this vein and X number of that vein. I don't know the accuracy of this science. It may be completely wrong. But the fact that it is written in these books, the fact that someone went, okay, we're going to put down in this theological, religious, philosophical text some very vivid details on the creation of a child or how many veins you have in your body or whatever, to me is pretty awe-inspiring. Because what it says is even though maybe they don't have it accurate, they were trying, and they were studying, and they were researching. And their scientists, thousands of years ago, were trying to figure stuff out. And that, to me, is awe-inspiring. Because we think about the technology back then, I don't know how the heck they were able to chart the course of a baby over so many months. So to me, it's, it's awe-inspiring, even if it's wrong. And it's, it's awe-inspiring because they're trying, and they... Also, they think it's valuable enough to put in religious texts. I mean, I've read the Quran, I've read the Bible, I've read tons of other stuff, and rarely do I see vivid scientific talk like I have seen in these books. So, I, I find chapters like this, I have this weird push and pull with them. You might too. That's why I'm being overly emotive here. Uh... I find that on one hand, I'm skeptical, I'm like, eh, this may be garbage, this may be so wrong. But at the other hand, I'm kind of like impressed that they were, were, were studying. And, and, and the thus, at the end of the day, I still say Hinduism is the most scientific religion. It may not be the most scientifically accurate religion, but it is the one that in its text felt science needed to be put up here alongside theology. 
Now, other religions were also scientific. Christianity has a long scientific history, um, and Islam has a great scientific history, and there was a drive to discover and research and whatever and develop, etc., etc. Um, but the Hindus put it in their texts, and that to me just kind of moves it up just a little, little bit. Anyways, that's my thoughts. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, whatever you want to say, please comment down below. If you have links to the uh, studies that have been done to show the scientific accuracy of these texts or what I just read, that would be really cool to see. And yeah, otherwise, thanks for watching. We'll finish up the chapter next time. Harry Krishna, Harry Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Harry Harry, Harry Rama, Harry Rama, Rama Rama, Harry Harry.